Sometimes you hear about someone and you, you don't even care if their book or their profession has anything to do with your podcast subject. They're just so interesting that you think to yourself, I want to have a conversation with this person. Welcome to episode 86 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown, and today I am joined by Elise Carter. That's all the information you're getting right now. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson a full-service branding, marketing, PR, and communications agency with team members in Boston, Los Angeles, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at NickersonCOS.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. I was at a networking party thoroughly enjoying my third glass of Chardonnay when the person I was talking to said, let me tell you about my friend Elise and this book she is writing. It's all about the history of lipstick. In the introduction, what she didn't say to me but she should have was let me tell you about my friend Elise. She's an award-winning sideshow performer. Yep, you heard that right. She's a sword swallower, fire eater, blockhead, and paintproof girl who has worked with Rob Zombie, Cirque du Soleil, and appeared on Gossip Girl, Oddities, The President Show, Mysteries at the Museum. And she also has a degree in American Studies from Barnard, and she recently wrote this book. That was the introduction I least deserved. That was what I found out when I started doing my research on her and her book. So, lipstick. Something small enough to fit in your front pocket does indeed have a storied history. Lipstick has evolved from a beauty secret for a select few to a required essential for well-turned-out women, but also a mark of rock and roll rebellion and a political statement. Remember when Sarah Palin let us know that the only difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull was lipstick? And then later on in the campaign, Barack Obama said you could put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig? See, there's more there there than you might think. To be honest, I'm not sure where this interview is going because, yes, I am intrigued by the history of lipstick, but I'm also just as intrigued by how someone gets started in the world of sword swallowing and fire eating. So let's just jump into it and see where it goes. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. That is, I feel so much cooler. <laughs> I did that stuff. Like, <laughs> I did so that shit. I was like, I want to know her. <laughs> And I'm wearing her underwear right now. <laughs> I, I did, like, seriously, talking about burying the lead when I was told about you, I'm going to start with the obvious question that has nothing to do with lipstick. How does one be, become a sword swallower, a fire eater, realize that they can do that with their bodies? The sideshow stuff, that is not an innate skill. That is not something you're like, get as a kid, like, <laughs> like singing and dancing. I had developed an interest in it since I, since I was like a preteen. And uh, I was just kind of fascinated by it because it was so- Did you go to a circus or a show or like, how did I, you- I am old enough to have seen Penn and Teller off yep. the way. Yep. And that was kind of like the first place I think I saw fire eating live. Uh, 
And then over the years, I started reading about it. And yeah, I actually wrote my college entrance essay on a freak show I went to, which was this woman named Little Gloria. I always found it kind of fascinating. And then in my 20s, I found this series of books by a guy who remains a dear, dear friend, became a good friend and a mentor. His name is James Taylor. It's not James Taylor, the singer. (laughs) James Taylor, the sideshow historian, totally different guy, wonderful, wonderful dude. And I just was always interested in it as a sort of weird thing that I thought was kind of punk rock until... I guess it was in my early 30s. I I was a World Trade Center survivor. I worked in World Trade Center and that kind of knocked me sideways for a number of years. And it also gave me this great sense of like, well, life is short. You might as well, if you're going to do anything, do it now. And I had really wanted to go to Coney Island Sideshow School, but I was freelancing at the time and I couldn't afford it. It's expensive because okay. <laughs> their insurance must be kind of insane. No, right. <laughs> uh, I I ended up talking to this woman who was introduced to me by a mutual friend is now one of my dearest friends. And I loved her as an artist. I knew her as a cartoonist and an artist and she's just fabulous. AV vibes. And for some reason we fell to talking about it. And I was like, yeah, really, I was interested, but it's really expensive. And she's like, oh, I'm a retired fire eater. Come over to my apartment in Brooklyn. She had high ceilings and we'll I'll teach you. And so that's how I learned fire eating. And that's not something you can learn in one day, right? It's not like, oh, come over to my apartment. By the end, you'll be like chewing fire. You can learn the basic in one day. It's, um, but there is a weird psychological phenomenon that I, a couple of people reported to me, which is you will bring the torch toward your face and just everything in your brain is like, don't put fire in your face. It's just a very natural instinct. And no matter how much you want it, you will watch your arm move away because it's like, don't put fire. You, you like your spine is like, don't put fire yeah. in your face. And you're like, but I want to. And your brain is like, no, you have to get over that. And then getting good at it. Like I still, I've been doing it 15, 16 years and I still am not as good as I want to be. Like there's still things that elude me. And I have terrible stage fright. I had never been a performer really in my whole life. And I think I'd done a one school play and I had, you know, I had studied film. I was interested in film, but I was never interested in being a performer. I was interested in being a director and a writer. And then I was like, well, now I have to take this on stage. So it was a whole lot of just learning to perform. Eating fire is great, but also I live in New York. I'm from Manhattan and there are just not a lot of venues. It's like, yeah, sure. Come into our basement and eat fire. So you, so it's a kind of impractical skill in New York. I did it a couple of places. And I wasn't good at it and I wasn't good at performing. So it took me about a year and a half at least. And I took every show and I was working full-time as a copywriter. Um, I took every show I could get my hands on. I never slept. And I just, I got up there and you get up there and you fail and you fail and you fail until you get good. Wait a minute. Yeah. How do you fail at firing? Because it seems like if you fail at fire eating, you burn your friggin' face off. I did burn my face once, fire breathing, which is actually a slightly different skill. Um, but uh, you put together, failure in this sense put means putting together acts that are just not all that interesting. Okay. And um, learning to work the mic and learning to be comfortable in front of an audience and learning to be very present and learning to overcome come nerves. And I had other skills. I can escape from straitjacket. I do what's called the human blockhead, which is I'm able to pound nails into my nose, actually both nostrils, which is kind of neat. And like, 
just getting up there and finding a stage persona and finding my feet on stage and being behind the mic and be able to stand in front of a room full of people and just be like, I am here and I deserve to be heard is a skill. How do you go from learning how to eat fire in your friend's apartment to sword swallowing (laughs) and shoving nails in your nose? Nails in your nose is one of the first skills you learn. That's actually, uh, does trigger the sneeze reflex in some people, but if you learn it, it's really quick. It's like a quick and dirty sideshow skill. And I always call it the chopsticks of sideshow because it's like playing the piano. It's like the okay. first little thing that you learn that you can show people. The thing is, uh, so every sideshow person does it. And then the trick is then making that act your own. And so mm. when I was coming up, it was mostly dudes. It was mostly guys and it was mostly, you know, rock and roll guys. And so they all, every single one of them will go from using a screwdriver or a nail to use an electric drill. And I didn't want to do it that way. Cause I was like, well, somebody already did that. Everybody already mm-hmm. did that. You, everybody, that's everybody's upgrade. And it, which is not to knock it because audiences like that is really horrifying to them. Um, but I just didn't want to do that because I felt like everyone had done it. And I was like, well, the whole joke is that on stage, I actually have no tattoos, which is very unusual for mm. side performer. I would think so. It's sort of unusual these days in general. Um, for Gen X, certainly. And I wore cocktail dresses and I got dressed up and I did my hair, my makeup, and I wanted to be more of a drag queen. I wanted to be very glamorous. I worked with burlesque performers and I'm like, I want fancy feathers and rhinestones, but I don't want to get naked. So it was more a way of like, how could I make everything ladylike? And I always describe my stage persona as the lady I, um, A-Y-E, as sort of part Carnival Barker and part Dorothy Parker. Like, <laughs> I love it. I show people really hate because we don't use the phrase Barker. We say talker and that's like a snobby thing. I thought it would be more funny for me and more interesting if I just came out and I was witty and clever, but also there's a little Judy Holiday in there and there, there's anti-mame is definitely in my stage persona. Like, not didsty, but I am always wearing makeup. I'm always wearing lashes. One of my performance, you know, idols is this burlesque performer named world famous Bob. And she calls what we do female, female impersonation. And that's genius, but also like, yeah, that's what it is. And so I went out there and I was like, I think I'm really glamorous. So you really have to find your sort of stage presence, your persona, there's a lot going on there to like, to stand out, which you wouldn't think you would have to work that hard. You wouldn't think there would be so much competition. (laughs) It's in New York. Uh, I was very lucky to come up for the New York burlesque scene Mm -hmm. and they're good performers, like being naked. And I'm not a naked person, but even just seeing that that is not enough for performance. There's Mm -hmm. a different, the difference being between being hot and being good is is thoughtfulness and the commitment to it and I see female sideshow performers all the time and I'm like don't rely on being cute no self-deprecation because I'm tired of women getting up on stage and apologizing for existing if you're behind the mic it's because you deserve to be there and just own that space 
owning that space in a way that's very unusual and and I just love and I wish we saw more of. Yeah. Um, to How me, did you go from being a sideshow performer? Well, we know you have a degree in in um sorry, was it as American? Yeah, American right, studies. Yeah, so we can understand your interest in history and history of products in America, maybe. But how did you go from that to saying, I'm going to write this book on the history of lipstick? You know, okay. So I, I love being a sideshow performer and there are months where my, I was like, oh, the lady I paid the rent the, this month. Yeah. But also I, I needed to make a living. It's very hard to make a lip, full-time living as a sideshow performer and mad respect for everyone who does it. It is much harder if you're not a bikini model or a tattoo or- sure. You know, like there are ways where you can make a living um, doing shows very regularly that pay well um, in New York and as ever, it's showbiz. And so mm -hmm. the idea is if you can do this, that's great. If you can do this in lingerie, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> now, that Nobody is wants to see me do this podcast in lingerie. I'll tell you that right yeah. now. <laughs> and uh, I was never that girl. And I, and again, there's nothing wrong with being that girl. If I was that girl, trust me, I would run naked to the supermarket. Uh, but that's not who I am. And so it really, a full-time job wasn't in the cards. I also started later. I was in my thirties and I was like, "Ugh, I am too old to sleep on floors mm -hmm. and to, to tour rock and roll style. Again, huge respect to anyone who does it. It's this, the saying in sideshow is it's a hard way to make an easy living. And that is yeah. very true. Like, so I saw in terms of beauty, I had a very interesting perspective on it because I, again, I knew what it was to be a female, female impersonator and, mm -hmm. and the power of makeup. Mm -hmm. um, I spend a lot of um, uh, time with people of all gender representations and loves of, of beauty for its transformative powers or, or not, or the rejection of it. And I had also seen how the sausage was made. And so I worked as a journalist. I've written for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Allure and Rolling Stone. Um, so I had this very interesting perspective on just what the power of makeup is. That said, I started the book on a whim. If we're being honest, I saw that this one company was looking for pitches for short subject books. And for some reason, I was like, I wonder if they've ever done lipstick. And that's how it started. And they, I, they did consider that book, but it, it's a company that put it, put out these really, um, not quite as long as a regular book, but much longer than an article. Mm -hmm. And they were on a singular subject. But once I started digging in, like I pitched it, but then I'm like, I really think there's something here because there are a lot of coffee table books on um, lipstick, but there wasn't anything, there's very little that's actually very substantive and sort of saw it in a micro history sense of like, this is a way of looking at American history and the women's experience and gender experience in America. And so I'm like, there's a real book here. And it actually took me a few years and a, three agents to sell it because okay. I had the spinal tap agent situation for a while. Um, they didn't die. They just like <laughs> do another stuff. they went on to do other stuff. So thank God they're fine. But I kept getting rejected because they're like, this is very niche. And I'm like, but it's a billion dollar industry. And it's an industry that's incredibly important to a lot of people's experience of America. And it's a, it's a really good 
litmus test just for the way that we are treating women. And, um, and I think a lot of people in publishing didn't see that. They just didn't understand that. Right. And I eventually found my editor, Jake, who is a tremendous guy. I just adored working with him and my, my agent, Tim. And it just, it took so much effort to sell this book because I think it is really just easy to dismiss lipstick as something frivolous or not important or not, um, or, or just silly. And it's not, it's, I mean, it can be, and, and that's part of the joy of it, but it's also can be something it, to me, it was just this fascinating way of looking at American history. From yeah. The, you know, I once read something and maybe you came across this as well in your research. I once read that during every economic downturn, the sale of lipstick increases. That is the lipstick index. And I actually, that was one of the things I, I handle in the book because it's a, there are earlier versions of it. It's mostly credited to Ronald Lauder uh, of the S.A. Lauder family. Oh, okay. Um, it is not true. Oh it, gosh, I was thinking it's like this little thing that makes women feel great because no, it doesn't it's cost as much money. One of the things I found, found in researching the book, there are a bunch of little things like that, like that idea that um, Elizabeth Arden gave lipstick to the suffragists. And mm-hmm. I couldn't find, even in her archives, in the press of the time, I couldn't find any example of it. And to the contrary, the suffragists were very, already considered with that idea of the dowdy feminist is a mm-hmm. very you know, the man-hating, ugly feminist, that comes in very early and not surprisingly. But that was one of the things, like we have all these myths about lipstick and because they sound right and they sound true. Now, mathematically, Mm -hmm. that one doesn't work out just because women buy lipstick when the economy goes up too. Right. Um, But it's because people will chase that one around. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, people are like, well, maybe it's the eyeshadow index. Maybe it's the skincare index. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the nail index now. Cause they were trying to find a substitute for the era of the mask. And uh, you, you really shouldn't do that because it's not a good, it's just not a good indicator. It's okay. not solid and it doesn't work out mathematically, but it sounds right. And it, it is a very appealing um way to talk about women and spending mm-hmm, and right. I, and I think that is worth studying yeah you also talk about in the book that yeah, a lipstick can be a form of identity maybe yes. especially in um sort of transgender or drag communities that for, for yeah. a lot of people obviously it's a form of self-expression but you talk about it as a tool of freedom and rebellion. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, lipstick is fascinating to me because it is a mark of rebellion and it's also a mark of conformity. And it, there is no one clean answer. Like I get asked a lot, is it feminist? And the answer is yes and no, but it is one of these really complicated things. And I, it, it's, it's all the context because women... The truth of the matter is that women in America, we have this another really enduring myth that we have, which is not true, is that women didn't start wearing lipstick until the like the 20s. And that is not true. And it the other idea was that, well, women wore lipstick, but they were sex workers. And that is also not true. It was very upper class because it's a very impractical item. If you mm-hmm. work on a farm, you don't need it. 
it's expensive, it cheers. Right. It it was made from Lord knows what, but Martha Beatles, wasn't it made from Beatles? Like especially red yeah. lipstick, right? Yeah, it was, and stuff like Alkanet Root. I don't even know what Alkanet Root is, but Martha Washington wore a lip balm, a colored lip balm made from Alkanet Root and lard and like earwax from whales. It was pretty gnarly stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but those things are expensive and they're impractical mm -hmm. if you're a homemaker and or work on a farm, which is the which is what most women did until the 20th century. Right. So the idea that nice girls didn't wear lipstick and it was lower class when in fact it was actually quite fancy. Now there may be some truth to the sex worker thing, but that idea of good girls didn't wear lipstick is false. So the thing that changes more than wearing lipstick is reapplying lipstick because it was wax-based or some kind of oily base and it was a boudoir item. So you wouldn't hike up your drawers in public and you wouldn't reapply lipstick. Edith Wharton referred to that as a, applying lipstick in public as a filthy habit. So what one of the things that changes is the lipstick tube is invented in 1917 in New Jersey and it's patented and they become more stable mm -hmm. and women are just out in public more. If you have ever been to old town or old Nick Sorley's ale house, you'll notice that bars were just for men. Public spaces were just for men. They didn't have ladies rooms. Right. Because women were not expected to go there. Mm -hmm. So just being out in public is a change that we get in the 20th century and women working outside to the home or the middle class rising. So there are all these changes and applying lipstick in public is a kind of rebellion because it's a break with the past. It very quickly becomes the norm. So you would not be uh, caught dead going out of the house without lipstick. It is what a proper lady does. It's like wearing a hat and glove. Right. You know, so by the 30s, during the Depression, when women are out job hunting, there's all this advice around, make sure you're wearing lipstick, make sure you've applied it flawlessly. Mm -hmm. um, that is way more important than a high school diploma, which not <laughs> it's true. I, it really, it, it, I think it was women, it was one of the ladies' magazines, like Good Housekeeping, which is like, looking good is way more important than your personality. So it becomes the norm. So by the time the sixties rolled around and, you know, you think of the forties, you think of there's all this stuff about gender norms shifting because women are in, in not in the, just in the workforce, but in masculine jobs like cop or factory workers. Sure. And then the fifties, which of course we think of as like super duper feminine, mm -hmm. you know, that Marilyn Monroe and, and, and Lucy and the archetype is just almost Victorian, it's curviness. Yep. And it's just, you know, women are in the home, men are at work. And uh, when we get to the 60s, the act of rebellion is sort of twofold, I found. It's one for white middle-class women rejecting makeup and rejecting beauty norms. Sure. And you get the whole hippie counterculture. And for uh, women of color, embracing who they are and because the beauty standard had always been white. It had always been blonde hair, blue eyed. Yep. Um, it had always been this very white standard of beauty. And the whole black is beautiful movement, for example, was really about embracing like 
no, we're different. Our hair is different. The tones of makeup that look good yeah. on us are different. And it's time that Revlon and Max Factor and whoever else, like we either need our own brands or we need you to recognize that we are consumers yep. or we reject the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's the act of rebellion. In the seventies, it shifts again. Glam rock is really huge. So you see gender play on stage in a, the mainstream in a big way for the first time in America. That is not like some like it hot drag that's, you know, male rock and rollers like David Bowie or mm -hmm. Reed, the New York Dolls suddenly showing up in drag or partial drag. And that's the foundations of punk rock. And of course the whole punk world is fascinating to me. And it's very, it's like taking the, you look at a woman like Debbie Harry, she's gorgeous. So she's able to take the whole Marilyn Monroe image and kind of turn it on its ear and reinterpret it as a way, as some sort of glamour as a middle finger to the norm. Like, yep. yeah, I'm wearing lipstick because I'm declaring that for me and not to get a husband, but because I love the way I look. And that's a whole new way of talking about it. Mm -hmm. you know, 80s, you have this whole continuation of the punk look and people declaring themselves with it. In the 90s, I, I go into Riot Girl. And if you think about Courtney Love and what a statement her lipstick was and that whole movement had a lot, you know, lipstick was important to it. It was mm -hmm. um, reclaiming femininity and reclaiming what it meant for themselves and writing on their bodies with lipstick, you know? Right. Um, and I was there. I remember girls walking around with like slut tattooed on their, not tattooed, but like written on their arm or their belly with lipstick or, or Sharpie. And it becomes this reclaiming of it. And, you know, we go through that and yeah, there's always a rock and roll edge to it. There's goth, there's punk, there's Missy Elliott with her black lipstick in the mm. 90s and Rihanna rediscovering it every few years. So it's both actual rebellion, it's commercialized rebellion where you're being sold that image. So in a lot of ways, it is both incredibly conformist and, and, and towing the line and incredibly rebellious. Even subtle things like Sonia Sotomayor was told not to wear red lipstick for her hearings, for her confirmation hearings as a Supreme Court judge, because they were like, it's too ethnic. Uh, and it was too bold a statement. And uh, the inheritor of that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She does not wear a subtle nude lip a lot of the time. Right. And right. for female politicians, that's a statement. That's a declaration of self. Hmm. And so this rebellion, sometimes it's something really small and sometimes it's something really huge. Right. Is there a um, most popular color from, you know, oh, generation to generation, there's a, or year to year, decade to decade, or is it all over the place? It's all over the place. I, one of my favorite professors was a, a film scholar named Molly Haskell. And Molly Haskell has a great theory that just, you love whatever your mother hated. Nah. <laughs> Which is very true in, in the Carter household. Uh, my mother was not a wearer of reds. My mother was like, it's too, it was too much. It was always too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's garish. And uh, she liked more natural pinker tones. And I, I just loved it. You know, I either... Mm -hmm. 
I always wanted little Joan Crawford, Marilyn Monroe, Susie Sue in my look. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I love that theory. I think it holds water. And I announced that at a talk recently and like a whole room full of women were like, yes. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, just kind of like exactly my response. Exactly. Yeah. So whatever, if your mother was aware of nudes, you will be aware of red. Yeah. Versa. So I, I do love that theory. Uh, that is totally Molly Haskell's idea. Uh, but it shifts. And some of it was practical. It was just reds were, red dyes are, were easier to manufacture. Easier to yeah. Yeah. Um, and you could write a whole book on how ch- colors go in and out and what that means. Um, but yeah, it shifts. And, uh, you know, again, like we break with the past, like a great example of that is the very pale creams of the mod look. And that's breaking with their mothers in the 40s and 50s, which were very bright reds. Right. I think it just seemed, it was supposed to look modern. Yeah. And if somebody decided, yeah, pale pink is the most modern. And whereas I look at a pale pink of the mod sort and we're like, oh, that's so dated. It's so retro. Yeah. Or like, um, I see brown, you know, cause I'm Gen X and I'm like, oh, please God, not brown lipstick again. Like, yeah, no, I'm Gen X too. So and yeah. I'm just as guilty. Mauve was a big thing when I was growing up. Mauve, because yeah. I'm, I'm 45. Mauve was the, I feel yeah. like I had 17 shades of mauve growing up. Yeah. We all had fun. That was a thing. And it just, you look back on it and you're like, yeah, everyone looked awful in that. Equally yep. awful. It didn't matter whether they were a supermodel or a next door neighbor, everyone looked. And I just, somebody mentioned it. It's a detail now on the TV show, Yellow Jackets, that they're, I don't know if you're watching it, but it's about a Gen X girls soccer team. They play, they get in a plane crash and it goes downhill from there. But in addition to the soundtrack and the clothing, um, I'm, one of the girls was wearing brown lipstick and I'm like, yep. All right. Yeah. The period, you know, like now it's a period piece. I was yep. in college in high schoolers, but like that now it's a period piece. And the same way, like when you think of a pinup girl, I defy you to think of a pinup girl without red lipstick. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so they're very of their era. And it's interesting. They come to be defining shades of an era. And the beginning of every chapter has what I think are some of the defining shades of the era. Um, it's so great. The book is called what? The Red Menace? How li- Yes, The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. And is it out now? Can we buy it now? Yeah, you can buy it anywhere. Excellent. You can get it uh, at Amazon or the Indi- uh, Barnes and Nobles. Have it. Everybody should have it now or ask. Fascinating. I think this, this is complete. Not only yeah. is this, I mean, I didn't know what was going to be more fascinating, the lipstick or the sword swallowing, but I think I've got an even tie. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give you a tip. It's just, if you're eating fire, uh, you can't wear a glitter lipstick because glitter melts, <laughs> which I've learned. So don't do that. Elise, uh, this was so great. I'm so glad we got connected. Yeah. So if there's anything, yeah, if you have any questions about like the industry or. Yeah, I'm going to put links to everything you in the show notes. This is so awesome. Thank you. And yeah, it's, 
it's funny. I noticed a bunch of people cut the sideshow part out of my bio and I'm like, no, not on this, not on this here podcast. <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> Are you ashamed to be seen with me? Wall Street Journal. This is great. I'll were- be in touch. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Who would have thought that so much history and rebellion and conformity could be tied up in one little tube of lipstick? Now think about all the other small things in our lives, how much more interesting they would be to us if we took the time to discover their origins, their history, how they've changed over time. It's the same with people. The more we get to know someone, the more we discover about them, the more interesting we find them, and the more invested our feelings become in them. Just remember that the next time you meet someone. They have plenty of stories to tell if you're willing to ask the right questions and to make those discoveries. So the drink of the week goes right along with the theme of this podcast. Well, sort of. I found a cocktail named Liquid Sword. That sure as fuck is the only sword I'll ever be swallowing. Probably you too, I'm guessing. So here's what you're going to need. Two ounces of vodka. One ounce of de Cooper Razzmatazz liqueur. Now, you know you have a bottle of this hiding in the way, way, way back of your liquor cabinet somewhere from when you were poor as fuck and couldn't afford nice liquors. Am I right? Well, if I'm not right, and you want to classy this drink up a little, you can up-level it to an ounce of Chambord instead of the Razzmatazz liquor. And you're going to need some orange juice. So what you're going to do is you're going to put the vodka and the Razzmatazz or the, or the Chambord in a Collins glass filled with ice, and then you're going to top it with orange juice. That's it. I'm not exactly sure why it's called the Liquid Sword, but it is, and it's your drink of the week. Thanks for being here and for listening. And don't forget to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And the next time you meet someone new, remember to not bury the lead on your own amazing talents and stories in your discussion either. Until next week. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.